I'm Robin D.G. Kelly. And this is Errol Garner Uncovered. Who is Errol Garner to you? I think back to that part about understanding what his role is in society is interesting. It seemed pretty clear. And I think that kind of pinpointing of an idea is very difficult to find. The other part about listening to Earl, it's so clean at a time when everything is a mess. He's preserved something that's so crystal clear. And that then makes his music even more powerful, right? Because it can be a place, just one of the small places where you can still see the flowers in the grass, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, no I, I preserved that for you, and it will still be here. I'm going to keep it for you. Hi, I'm Pete Lockhart, senior producer for Octave Music. On this episode of Uncovered, Dr. Kelly explores Garner's 1963 live album, One World Concert, with the incomparable Jason Moran. Taped in New York City, back before the corona lockdown, their conversation digs into the complexity of Garner's relationship with his audience and his impact on artists from Aretha Franklin to Jay Dilla. Moran himself finds inspiration in Garner's previously unreleased introductions. So much so, in fact, that he heads to the piano to break one of them down for an on-the-spot reinterpretation that you won't want to miss. Here's host, Robin D.G. Kelly. Pianist, composer, visual artist, cultural leader, writer, and dare I say historian, Jason has proven to be one of the most innovative, path-breaking artists of the 21st century. No respect of genre boundaries, Moran absorbed the influences of hip-hop, avant-garde, classical, blues, spirituals, film, theater, literature, and visual arts. Jason is the perfect interlocutor to discuss Errol Garner, the musician, the artist, the performer, and the power of live music for the soul. We are honored, actually I should say privileged, to have as our guests to talk to us about One World Concert, the only artist in the world ever who has a cover of Lift Every Voice and Sing, Planet Rock, and Body and Soul. <laughs> no no one has those three. Nobody has those three. I, I'm putting money on that. <laughs> so Jason, let's begin with the question I pose to all my guests. Who is Earl Garner to you? Wow. You know, I think when I was learning piano, I got a lot of Earls mixed up. Earl Campbell, Earl Hines, <laughs> and Earl Garner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're all very three different kind of mm-hmm. warriors. Mm-hmm. And Earl Garner, when I was learning piano, like, you know, 14, 15, when I was kind of learning about jazz, then it was imperative that for my grandparents' sake, that I learned how to play Misty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And actually, my younger brother learned how to play it a lot better than I did. (laughs) So really, we started to understand who Earl Garner was at that age. And then at that point, you think, this is a person who has made music that has affected generations. So then I think of him as a king and one who, you know, one who knew how to distribute joy, Mm -hmm. right? At such a fracturous moment of American history. So... You can go to another group to get, you can go to Charles Mingus to get right. whatever you want to get from him, or you can get what you need to get from Train. But when you come here, this trio, we're going to give you this. We're going to give you bounce. We're going to give you a dance. We're going to give you a slow dance, right? We're going to give you all that. So a person who understands his place in society, and he knows the power of his music. 
One World Concert was originally an LP of nine tracks selected from Five Nights of Music. He recorded at the Seattle World's Fair Playhouse between August 20th and 25th, 1962. Uh, in other words, these were Garner's selections of 40 minutes worth of music out of eight hours of music. Of course, his standard trio backed him, Eddie Calhoun on bass, Kelly Martin on drums, and the LP was originally released in 1963 on Frank Sinatra's reprise label. In fact, an arrangement was made between uh, Earl and Martha Glazer and their label, Octave Records, in reprise. And in fact, what's interesting is that um, One World Concert was the first live LP Earl made since um, his famous Concert by the Sea album, 1955. Some of these... Um, these amazing introductions were cut short. Mm. They, they would edit them mm. for the purposes of release. And mm. with these recordings, the remasters, they have the whole intro. Mm -hmm. And when I hear Earl like take these moments to just, I don't know, one way you could say is he's like finding the colors that he wants to use later in the piece and he's just putting them on the palette. Mm -hmm. He ain't really even telling you what the form or the right. sketch is going to be. Right. And then you hear, boom, and then, <laughs> then the trio is in, you know? <laughs> That's what I always love. Like also about trios is is that you know they can move pretty quickly together like a flock. But Earl does that in those intros, and that's it's different than his like improvisations he mm -hmm. does on the tunes. You right. know how he makes these intros is really like it's like an open field, right. and and you're watching him really flex on the instrument in those moments too. Right. He's doing stuff that you know in those intros that he doesn't do when the band is playing. So right. he's like, no, nah, let me let me show you. <laughs> Let me show you my superpower before the trio comes in. <laughs> the cut, The Way You Look Tonight, has like an intro that's about a minute and 16 seconds. Mm -hmm. This astounding piece that's, that doesn't seem to have any particular relationship to the melody when it comes. Mm. Or it may just be like a whole different tune that he's just composing on the on spot. On the spot, right. Stop. I'm sorry. I always like to, because <laughs> um, like the first thing that, like the first thing is like when you hear the audience applaud right. before he starts, it gives you the scale. Right. Right. You get the scale of the room, right. which sometimes, you know, like you hear in live recordings, you hear John Coltrane play this crazy long solo. And afterwards, you hear about seven people. <laughs> scale. You know what I mean? Scale right. of the room. But like you hear like they fall back and then they listen to the intro. 
And they're like, what? And then he starts playing the tune, and they wait till that second phrase, and they're like, oh. <laughs> and they applaud again. Right. They don't really applaud, you know, like in right. midway, unless right. he's playing right. like a hit hit. I thought that was all, that was like just that audience relationship, right. which you know, as that kind of black performer, mm-hmm. then is, you know, like right. it's, it's tied up. Mm-hmm. It's knotted up. Earl Hines used to pivot his body towards the audience. Duke Ellington, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Body faced out. Even though they're facing the instrument, they, they pivot so that they confront face right, their right, audience. Right, right, right. It's that's heavy. True. Yeah. And um, that's a gaze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it just is. It's a gaze on on what he's doing. But then when the band comes in, like like at the, at the top of the form, they don't all go bound. He actually leaves a negative space. He doesn't mm-hmm. even play on the one. And then that comes back in. So you feel like he just built this big thing up and then he didn't even slam it down. He took the level, the volume, mm-hmm. so I could all the way back down and started drawing again, right? I don't know, like that kind, that kind of trio playing is, mm-hmm. like for me that's a perfect example of kind of a, uh, the relationship, the kind of language, the, you hear Eddie like playing some of the bass mm-hmm. notes, like okay, I think you might be going here, right? Like checking, you know, like mm-hmm. am I in the right place? Mm-hmm. The other part, when I hear it now from my age range, I just hear that some of those chords, oh man, anybody who heard that who was a hip hop producer would be mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna sample that. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they were right. so ripe for right. like, oh, those four bars were perfect. Right. Like they were so perfect, I could listen to them for an hour right. as I built this beat, <laughs> you right. know, around right. it. Right. That's how good and, you know, good is a lame term, but it's, it's yeah. that's how good that music is. You could hear in the modulations of mm-hmm. the of the chord. He's, he's telling a story. He's building up to something. Yeah. One person really made Earl Garner a pivot for me, and it was Jackie Byard. So uh-huh. my teacher, the reason I moved to New York was to study with Jackie Byard at Manhattan School of Music. Jackie was one of the biggest Earl Garner fans. He has a song called Garner in a Bit, where he kind of apes Earl Garner's style. And it was Jackie who was saying, ah, this is how you use his style, right? And he would teach me the songs, and then he would write out the ways that Earl Garner would play things. So I started to see how it fit in my hand and how I understood him as my teacher. Um, And that puts it in a, you know, in that kind of back in that king status again. So your teacher is like, okay, so here's what you need to look at, you know? Right, right. And I'd say the the one that really just hemmed me up, and it wasn't it wasn't really until like late college that I like got like the real bug of his power, and it was the way he played "Poor Butterfly." And there was something about hearing the way he pulled at the beat that I just hadn't really understood how difficult that is to do in two hands, you know? When you listen to, you know, like, the way Thelonious Monk gives space into his stride piano versus how Earl Hines did 30 years earlier, right? Those hands are very in tune or in in sync with each other with where the beat is. But Earl, like, pulls both sides against each other, right? So it's like, it's like this, I don't know, this flexibility and Jackie wanted me to learn that. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to learn the flexibility that the hands can have against each other. They can be in sync, 
but you also need to know how to pull them apart. At the moment of also hearing when Jay Dilla is also coming on the scene in the late Mm -hmm. 90s, it's the same time that I'm hearing this. Those two things seem to be such the same intuition uh, as far as rhythm was concerned. And so I pair them. When I talk about Dilla, I talk about Earl Garner because he just had this, somehow he gave this bounce to the beat without kind of leaning too far forward and leaned back just enough to give, you know, like a person who angles their fedora over one of their eyes. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, now that is a collaboration, Jay Dilla and Errol Garner yeah. through Jason Moran. That's, that's, <laughs> that's something to think about. We're digging in now. <laughs> but the other part about listening to Earl is, I, you know, there are times where you wish, oh, I wish I could hear what that piano sound was live. Mm-hmm. Because the way he digs into the piano, the way he kind of makes it distort sometimes with his left hand and with... Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, how you see him strike the keys. Right. Much that, like, the only thing I've seen, you know, in my lifetime like that is Cecil Taylor and McCoy Tyner. Right. <laughs> They're the only two that I know that really, like, when they hit the key, mm-hmm. it's more than just their arm, it's their body. Right. But it's an entire people. And <laughs> how they strike some of those keys. And and it makes the the sound of the piano ring in a way that it, like, it, it starts to tweak, you know? And, um... Earl generally does it sometimes like in these intros. You just hear in these intros where, you know, like when they say the piano is an orchestra, like right. it, it comes from ideas of, and pianists like Earl Garner mm-hmm. who really think about it as a, you know, an orchestration tool, you know, even though it's just three people. Right, you know? right. So now we're going to listen to uh, Garner in his own words. He's on uh, the Patricia Curlin show uh, promoting One World Concert. This is recorded in 1963. To label Errol Garner a jazz artist is to tell only part of the story. An evening with Errol Garner is what his listeners enjoy. Time says one of the best pianists around. The Los Angeles Times says a true phenomenon. We're inclined to agree. And uh, Cashbox says jazz pick of the week, Errol Garner's One World Concert. Billboard, I'm, I'm, I've got it all in front of me, look. Oh, Billboard wonderful. Spotlight pick. Errol Garner, One World Concert. Brother. What, what, what a, what a plucking. <laughs> well, this I appreciate. I'm for being plucked this season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, this is beautiful. World acclaim. Newsweek said about Errol Garner, the man for whom the piano was invented. His extemporizations have left audiences of all tastes and ages and backgrounds and listening experience cheering for more Errol Garner. Errol's concert itinerary in 1963 includes uh, Canada and England, yes. Europe, and uh, Australia in 1964. We're hoping to go to Australia and plus Japan. If we, if it comes up, we're hoping for the future. Yes. Uh, I'm gonna ask a question. When do you sleep? Well, right now I'm what they call the type that uh, gets in on one side and gets right out on the other side. But like I do get a few hours in a row. A few minutes. That's for sure. We were talking before on that very subject. We were talking about the fact that when you're doing what you love to do, what you were born to do, this is rest in itself. Well, it is because, like, as long as you know you're creating and something for the average human being in this world, it's just like it's more or less feeds you. 
And when you can be happy doing what you're doing, that's peace of mind and that's rest within itself. In talking with Yul Brynner once, he said that very few people are lucky enough to be doing what they were born to do. That is correct. And if you are at the same time and earning a living at it, earning enough money to take care of yourself, and at the same time growing up as a human being, it makes you a very lucky guy. It does, tremendously. But what does a guy do when he has all of the gifts that you have in one package? <laughs> well, what I try to do is try to distribute a little bit here and there and make everybody love it as much as I and possibly can. I certainly do love the sound of Errol Garner. And I thank you for having me, sincerely. So your, th your thoughts? I mean, I think back to that part about understanding what his right. role is mm -hmm. in society is interesting. I think most of us don't really know who make music. We have an idea, but it seemed pretty clear. And I think that kind of pinpointing of an idea is very difficult to find. Most, I mean, look, I'm fucking all over the place, right? <laughs> I don't know what I'm throwing my arrows at. You know what I mean? Um, but when I listen to a canon of his music, then it it's like, nah, it's right here. Mm -hmm. I don't mind marking it out for you again either. Right. And then, you know, like, this is 1963 in that interview, too. Right. We also know what's happening in 1963. Exactly. Birmingham is blowing up. Yeah. The March on Washington. You got, you know, Kennedy's assassin. You got a lot of things going on in 63. You know, sometimes I wonder for every performer, it's just how they've mm -hmm. compartmentalized. When she asks... When do you sleep? I don't read it as when do you rest. I read it as when do you kind of like figure out all this other shit that's happening. Right. Around right. you. Exactly. And to the communities that you come from. You know, how are you managing that? Like, are you resting or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and that then makes his music even more powerful, right? Because it can be a place just... One of the small places where you can still see the flowers in the grass, mm -hmm. right? Like, right. no, nah, no, I, I preserve that for you, and it will still be here. I'm going right. to keep it for you. about what it meant for, for audiences, for fans of Earl Garner in 1963, after, you know, you have to wait, you know, seven years yeah. uh, after, you know, Concert by the Sea, you know, people would see him live. Right. But there's something special about this recording, yeah. about having that audience there, um, of imagining him, you know, again, turn toward the audience, mm -hmm. his gaze, as you put it, mm -hmm. you know, um, and their gaze back. Mm -hmm. It's really spectacular. One cut that was not released on the original 
has all those kind of Garner-esque flourishes. Uh, it's titled Other Voices. Right. The, the little thing that he does in midway through, like, where he leaves these gaping silences. They feel like gaping silences because he's filled up most of the space. And then these just little moments where he goes, bum, 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 and then it's like that for the rest of the song. I mean, he treats his songs like they're classics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the way he uses that left hand just to kind of always keep the shimmer there, you know. said something really profound, you know, at the top, where you talked about um, Garner's role is bringing joy at a time when it didn't seem like, it didn't seem like joy was, was pervasive. Mm. The future might have looked bright, but, you know, in the moment when in 1963, four little girls were killed in, in the bombing mm -hmm. of 16th Street Baptist Church, it's a hard place to find that kind of joy, but he he brought it, mm -hmm. and he brought it knowing this is a circumstance. Yeah. Um, do you see that as part of of shaping not just Garner's approach to music, but even his his repertoire, his his decisions to travel around the world? I mean, and to to create a music that, in some ways, wasn't meant to be a commentary mm -hmm. as much as an intervention. Hmm. Like, I rarely think of him as that kind of artist. But in hindsight, now I have to place him there. You know, when we learn about musicians in school, we rarely learn about what the politics are mm -hmm. around why they make the music they make. And I think even maybe in some of these cases, they're rarely asked, too. You know, like, so why these songs? <laughs> <laughs> why the way you look tonight? You know what I mean? Like, um, it also makes it a little bit scary for mm -hmm. me, too. It comes out so clean, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? It's like um, in a weird way, right? Like yeah. it's so clean at a time when everything is a mess. Right. He's preserved something that's so <laughs> crystal clear. Right, right. The other person I wanted to ask about Earl Garner was McCoy Tyner because I never thought of them having like a real link as pianists together. But when I hear this recording... Mm -hmm. When you hear early McCoy Tyner, you hear how he plays, right? It's crystal clear. But then as it moves like a few years later, he gets into a, a very knotty thing, you know, like knots, like like smaller intervals that turn in on themselves. And the left hand grows more and more tumultuous in the mm -hmm. left, you know, at the bottom of the piano, right? right? Mm -hmm. The interval choice families shift dramatically. Mm -hmm. And Earl was preserving that family intervals, you right. know because I think he still knew we needed it. Are there any particular tracks on this recording that remind you or invoke McCoy? Go to Sweet and Lovely. Mm -hmm. 
like how that left hand moves, yeah. right? His insistence. I know what you're talking about with, with respect to McCoy. That's, and, it, and it's yeah. also like the in that for him, generally pianists kind of find a way to make the right hand their identity base, you know? But for him, it's really the left hand. Mm -hmm. It's how he pumps his left hand. He's like does this thing in the left hand, but then also this like total domination over it, you know, right. Randy Weston style too, you know, mm -hmm. like totally uses the bottom of his of the piano. He's probably one of the last that mm -hmm. thinks of the piano like that. Because when it gets to, when piano really gets going in the sixties and seventies, that becomes more a staple of the old school shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So pianists kind of get rid of it. Bill Evans kind of gets rid of it, you know. Right. Things start to live in the left hand in the middle of the register rather than way down at the bottom. But Earl was like, <laughs> he had an entire identity down there. His left hand is the dancer's beat. He gives a dancer confidence mm -hmm. that they know where the beat is and they can do any move they want to with it. Um, and that's taking care of people. Or when he used a sustain pedal, right? Like, like all the notes blur into each other. And then he sucks it away, and then he's giving you like the, the tiniest etching, you know? Um, that's part of that power. But like in that, just that statement of the melody and what he does with his left hand, it's remarkable. And I think that the way he uses the left hand is he gives you the landscape for the song, you know, that he played, the melody that he plays in his right hand. So the left hand isn't just, I'm going to give you the harmony, right? But it's like the way the harmony is felt. Mm -hmm. So is it tundra? Is it sand? You know, is it an iceberg? Mm -hmm. You know, is mm -hmm. it water? He gives you this sense of, I know where I am because how he's playing his left hand, you know. I think of the left hand, and most of the gene pool of pianists that I come from think of the left hand as they know that's one of our retention sources. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, yeah. It might be up here, but right. most of it is there. Right. It's the rhythm, it's the bass, it's the bass drum, it's the larger drum, right? Like, it's that. We know the power of that. And if you eliminate that, eh, you might be trying to eliminate us, mm -hmm. you know, out mm -hmm. of the sound of how this music is. Wow, that's I, you got you got my my head spinning.
He did some ballads on this recording, and one very popular ballad at the time was Happiness is a Thing Called Joe, which I have to say my own personal favorite is always Abby Lincoln's version of that, mm. that song. Um, but lots of people recorded Ethel Waters, Judy Garland. It was, it was a hit. Like the way he uses his left hand, there's like a choir, right? Like, right? Like, oh, you know, like the like <laughs> Hall Johnson choir, oh, you know, like holding those chords, you know, for his melody. But he's also like, he's a pianist, you know, like pianists talk about this too. Like, it's not two hands, it's actually three hands that you mm. have, you know, and depending on how you do it, you can have three different voices. So he has one that's like his choir, right? His then he has his melody, and then he has his soloist. And he uses three different touches for them. Wow. So every one you hear him play a melody, and then you hear the response from the solo. Boo! You know what I mean? Like the, and the soloist got like attitude, you know, like you know, like any choir soloist. <laughs> this is my time. Right. This is my song. I'll sing a solo on. <laughs> you know, like he treats his fingers like that. You know. The group is just playing, mm -hmm. right? Like they're marking and he's just kind of like knocking all around inside the song, you know? So they're just there to just kind of help him mark. It's soulful. Yeah, no, that, that choir metaphor is perfect. It's, it's, it's more perfect than when people say orchestral. I mean, the choir is no, something it's specific. it's a choir. It's a choir. Specific. I mean, especially the way he's playing, you know? I mean, that, I mean, like a lot of questions came up while listening to the record, which were, damn, did he and Alvin Ailey ever meet, you know? Or did he play for a choir ever in his life, you know? Like, what were the parts of his career that we don't, we don't know about? Right. You know, like, uh, who did he give lessons to? You know, just like stuff like right. that. Because you could tell his hand went out pretty far. And I was, gonna, and I was trying to find this. It's, it's a song on this Aretha Franklin song. Now, hold on right quick. Let me just find it right quick. Um, and there's a piano solo on it where Aretha does straight fucking Earl Garner. Um, and she's playing piano on this? Yes. A brand new me. It's coming up. But a straight Earl Garner solo. Just because, because, because of Wait a minute now. Wait, I'm just saying. Like when I say like, and I, right. I mean, because it's like the women I know, the mm. black women I know that learn how to play piano like Earl Garner, mm -hmm. like Alicia's two aunts, both knew how to do it. They are not musicians. They do other stuff with their life. You know, like there's something so um, post everything mm -hmm. <laughs> about, about it. But, you know, but because it's like, it's too. It's so classic. It always works. It fits. It's always necessary. Um, 
and and its style doesn't age in a way where you feel like it's old school because it's mm-hmm. always pertinent. Whatever kind of combinations he was able to gather, you know, um, into a style, always make it feel right. Right. And when I listened to her, Aretha Franklin, play, I was like, oh, yeah, you know that same bounce, right? You know what's needed in this song, and it sounds like this. That was one other thing about him was the virtuosity of his piano playing. Even within the layers of things that I love about him is that he then pulls out this virtuosity moment and he is not afraid to show you like, well, this is exactly how amazing I am. I always associate you with Kurt Vile for a couple of reasons. One, you did the amazing show with Alicia mm. of Kurt Vile's music, mm. and I was there for that, and it was astounding. Mm. And, and it was a beautiful combination of vocals and piano, and and you back Cassandra Wilson mm-hmm. and Kurt Vile's mm-hmm. music. Uh, so Mac the Knife is mm-hmm. one of the tunes on here. Earl has his way of doing Mac the Knife, which is unlike mm-hmm. <laughs> anyone else. <laughs> Uh, so talk about that, you know, your response to, to Mac the Knife, even your response to Kurt Vile's yeah. Well, there's something special. I mean, okay, anything I'm going to say about Kurt Vile is uh, it's just my feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not scholarship. <laughs> Everything you say is scholarship, brother. <laughs> Everything. And art. And art. But Kurt Vile is a, a, like a pivot, you know, for a, a, a lot of black performers, mm-hmm. Right. A lot of black performers find Kurt Vile's relationship to his society and the comments he makes on it in that work a place for them to jump inside to. Right. So Nina Simone does it powerfully, you know, uh, as well. And Kurt Vile worked with Langston Hughes, right? Like he's very aware, mm-hmm. very aware as a composer. Uh, there's something about how he sets scenes, you know, as a you know, maker of theater, these operas, mm-hmm. uh, these song cycles, Seven Deadly Sins. There's a way that he sets a scene in a story that you feel the trauma, you feel uneasy, right? He sets it in the chords. Uh, so Mac Knife is out here slaughtering people, mm-hmm. but he set like the total feel of it is like, no, nah, everything is cool though. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, like it's right. bizarre, you know? That's Earl Garner, too, like playing these nice songs in 1962. <laughs> you know, everything is cool. Right. Everything is cool. No, believe me, everything is cool. <laughs> Meanwhile, stuff is going down, you know what I mean? So I don't know, Kurt Vile kind of like does this for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so this Mac the Knife in the intro, which the great thing probably about this record is all these intros, is, is we get to hear the artists kind of like set the parameter for the song mm-hmm. with, you know, kind of open landscape. And, you know, in the sense of, the kind of performer he is, he uses the modulation tool mm-hmm. in the song. So then it switches up a key, you know, like a certain era of musicians do this. And then most of us have stopped doing that. Right. Like nearly all of us have stopped doing that. Um, but it always works. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. maybe, can I? Can we listen to, to, yes, to, yes. to Matt? I want to hear these cold. Oh yeah, anyway, just play it. Mm-hmm. 
shit. <laughs> Wait, play it again. Because it's bizarre, right? I'm going to go over there and try to figure that shit. I have to say, I need to learn and figure that out. But go ahead. <laughs> You know, that's um, also the trio is on fire there, yeah. you know, like as a group. Like, mm-hmm. that's. I don't know how many times they probably played that. Mm-hmm. A zillion, maybe, or maybe it's the first time. Because he does a thing where he leads just enough to, mm-hmm. you know, like I think for for Eddie and Kelly, like they, they know, and but then they. they mm, they seem like they fire him up in right. this one. But yeah, that that is uh, spectacular. Yeah, when I say I wish he wrote more songs, he like that intro is a different tune. Mm-hmm. It should be a medley. It's not just Mac the Knife. Right. This is some Earl Garner composition <laughs> that just doesn't have a title. Exactly. Right, and it happens enough times to where you know, like, okay, his ideas about composition come out in these intros. Um, yeah, piano's right there. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Is there some headphones over on yeah. that? Okay, let me just try to figure it out real quick.
shit. I mean, you know, okay, right. So here, look, this is what. The other thing about you know like the way he plays mm. piano is he sits high yeah. right like he sits on right. phone, phone books right. you know and so his hands I mean I can't how tall was he maybe five two right he's finding a way to make his hands fall into the keys so that he can move right. around and um, because at my height getting around like those big chords that he plays from the way I sit at the piano mm -hmm. is difficult if mm -hmm. I sit higher it might be a little bit easier. <laughs> There's something that pianists try to figure out with how they, you know, like how they hit a note. Mm -hmm. Like, how does your body like get into a note? Mm -hmm. And and when he does it, his sound is enormous. It's it's the sound that Randy Weston gets, right. who's six six. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so here's this guy like kind of getting these kind of big sounds, heavy. It's you know, I mean, even when he's playing light, he plays it with such kind of like gravity that it mm -hmm. just cuts through everything um right. but that intro in particular just blew my head mm -hmm. up because i was like i don't know how because that it makes sense because he's playing it but <laughs> there's some other logic that he has in that His signature song, the song that everyone begins with when it comes to Earl, mm. you know. All right, here's a band that's been playing this song. <laughs> They're hit. Right. You know, a Majumal trio playing uh, Poinciana. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, playing their hit. Right. 
part of the excitement of it is still that, you know, you hear these moments where something brand new feels like it happens. And they've been playing this song a long time. And I think about people who played songs for, you know, decades. Like Thelonious Smoke playing the same you know, songs for a long time, right? How do you still find something in it that you want to show someone? Maybe you don't even like that song anymore, right? Like, but they seem still enthused by it. Yeah, you could tell that um, the whole band, but Errol especially, he loves that song. Yeah. He loves that. And it's a beautiful song. You know, I had this thought about publishing. Mm. Is it his song? Does he own the publishing to the song? He does. He does. Okay, great. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to see, like, okay, sometimes we talk about record sales. Okay, yeah, great, yeah. right? You know, a lot of the money for the artist mm -hmm. is in this publishing. Publishing, right, right. You know, and I wonder how much with Misty, mm -hmm. you know? Because I think even when I first learned the tune, I didn't learn it knowing that he wrote it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it was like it's in some other canon of songs. It's not even jazz. And I'm glad he wrote that. I mean, like for me, one of the best Black Power moments is to find out that Misty is right. <laughs> that he it's that he owns his. it. Yeah, because that's you can't you can't say that about Round Midnight. No, you can't. You know, you know what you I mean? can't say that about you know. Yes. So I'm always thrilled to hear them play mm -hmm. it because it's like nah, he right. no telling what he was able to do with that. Pittsburgh, Migration City, you mm -hmm. know, like he don't play blues like that, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> but the way he mumbles is total mm -hmm. Howlin' Wolf right. and J John Lee Hooker and Muddy Water. It's like right. total all of that, right? I thought like when he, when you hear him breathing, when you hear him mumble, like that's the breath of effort, mm -hmm. you know? It even in the most what you might think is a mundane phrase is. <laughs> the amount of effort it yeah. took to make that, right? You you hear it. He acknowledges it. And I remember my mom used to love talking about, because she used to love listening to Glenn Gould play Goldberg Variations, and mm -hmm. you hear him utter the phrases under his breath, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow when we think about Glenn Gould's muttering and Earl Garner's muttering, they're two different places for me. 
But when I hear him like utter, it's like, this is effort. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it might come off as easy and clean, <laughs> but it takes a lot to make this. When you hear Elvin right. Jones do it, you know like he's behind a drum set and like what the drums mean. And, and we know that that takes effort mm -hmm. to do this, right? To move the arms, all the limbs around. And so you hear that kind of, right, right, you know? But on a piano player, it always means something different. And I've always been happy that the recordings always had that really up in the mix, right. you know, that you can right. hear Earl's body, not just the fingers, but you hear like his breath, because piano players are notorious for not breathing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in here, you, you hear him, you know? Right, yeah, no, Willie the Lion Smith was famous for saying that, you know, when you hear those grunts and groans, you know the piano player is working. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, okay, stop that. Sorry. Because, I mean, look, um, I've been thinking about the ways in which, in language, we decrease the value of black invention. Mm. And that the blues form exists, right. you know, as an invention, right? Like a creation that totally revolutionizes music. Yeah. Right, no, so like by the time we get here, it's long kind of mm -hmm. had made many things, many children, mm -hmm. generations of children <laughs> come out of the blues. And so that here he is still coming right back right. to it and that anybody, even right now, comes back to the our, the classic form. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the way they teach music in schools is that it's nothing. Mm. That's the way they taught it to us. Mm. They taught mm. it so so little to us so that you would never, ever consider how powerful a form it was. And you'd never go looking for it either. Right. Wasn't even brought up at Manhattan School of Music. Mm. Man, Jackie Bayard did, yes, right? That's my teacher. Right. But for all the other classes I had there, it was not brought up as a thing that you should know that was that totally changed the game. <laughs> And um, and then what musicians in our can in jazz canon have done with the form too, right? And just like listening to this again and the way that train comes in, right? Like it's not. This is you know like we, look, Alicia and I just did this concert about the Great Migration called Two Wings. I could have put this in there, mm. right? If I do it again, I'm putting Moving Blues in there because it is the one. It it shows right. it too of the generations of performers who found ways to kind of make music out of the movement away from terror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could hear that train whistle too yeah. in, the, in that. It shows in, up. In that, 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 the sort of modern technology of freedom mm -hmm. um, for that generation was the train, mm -hmm. you know, which I think is important to remember mm -hmm. in this age when everyone's sort of meditating on the slave ship, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. train. That mm -hmm. was the mode of freedom, and it, and that's the sound we produce in that music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's. Look, I, you, I don't know. Maybe he's is he wearing a tuxedo that night? Does he have <laughs> Does he have a tuxedo on in the picture? I think probably he right, does. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's still getting down right. in it. Right. <laughs> that's what I also love. <laughs> 
You know, his mm. conch, his sweat, and his tux, you know, mm. <laughs> and his tunes. <laughs> well, I have to say thank you because, you know, I knew this would be a great conversation. Um, and I knew that every time I have a conversation with you, Jason, I come away enlightened. Um, this lifted, lifted all of us up to, you know, to like, this is the new Garner Scholarship. You basically, <laughs> you basically laid out a new project for the next 20 years of how to think about his music. And I really appreciate uh, that. Thank so, you, Robin. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Errol Garner Uncovered is a production of Octave Music. Our show is produced by Alex Arif and myself, Pete Lockhart. Our executive producer is Susan Rosenberg. This episode's conversation was recorded at GSI Studios in New York, thanks to Jason Rostowski. You can find the newly expanded and remastered edition of One World Concert anywhere you listen to music, and get more info on our whole series at errolgarner.com. Special thanks to our friends at Mac Avenue Music Group and Dante Music Publishing. If you've been enjoying the series, let us know with a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new, be sure to subscribe so our next episode pops into your feed. It features the one and only Terry Lynn Carrington and a deep dive to Garner's 1963 album with full orchestra, A New Kind of Love. <laughs> <laughs>